my goals are not to see if they remember this rule, if they remember the words. My goals are, can they communicate successfully at this level? It, you know, in institutional education, everything is so structured. You start here this many times a week, you know, you have to move forward, you have the midterm, you have the final, everything is, is just, you know, it's not organic enough and, and language acquisition is very organic. And so I think that time is the biggest challenge we have. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Florencia Henshaw returns to discuss her book, Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom. We're back from spring break. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking once again with Florencia Henshaw, who recently gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on SLA principles and assessment. Her talk was part of our spring learning community that is sponsored by the Central New York Humanities Corridor from an award by the Mellon Foundation. The learning community brings together colleagues from Cornell, Colgate, Skidmore, and Syracuse to exchange best practices in language teaching. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Florencia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me yet again. (laughs) So we always like to start out our podcast talking about uh, our guests' background and path with languages. Um, I know this is your second time here, but uh, quickly for our listeners, uh, remind everyone what you're up to and where you come from. So I am originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, so I am a native Spanish speaker. I moved to the U.S. when I was 19, and I moved here because of love, Uh, (laughs) and you know how it is. And then I, um, I was going to study biology, that was my major for a while, and then somebody told me that you could teach languages in the U.S. And I was like, okay, I love that. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to become a Spanish teacher. And then somebody uh, convinced me that I had what it takes to do a Ph.D. And so I went <laughs> all the way with a master's and the Ph.D. And I ended up teaching just college. Yeah, that's how it goes. Well, and we need to thank um, all those people who convinced you that language teaching is your chosen path because you have had tremendous impact on the language teaching community here in the U.S. and internationally, too. Thank you. So, Florencia, in this learning community that we are currently hosting with our colleagues from the Central New York Corridor, We are reading your recent co-authored book, Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom. What are some of the fundamental aspects of SLA, particularly as they pertain to proficiency-oriented instruction? So to simplify a lot, I think the, the three that I always go back to is first the role of input the undeniable need for input Mm -hmm. to understand how much we need it. And we don't need it just as exposure. In fact, input is not just exposure. So understanding what input is exactly, what we do with it, and then what role it plays. Mm -hmm. Um, The second one that I go to is the role of output. And I know that perhaps people have different opinions on this matter, but I believe that most SLA researchers would probably agree that output does play an important role. And so we need to understand that too. 
Um, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to input and output out there. Mm. And sometimes we tend to think that input is just exposure and that output is just production uh, or it's just language practice. And so we need to understand a little bit better what those two are. But I think they both have a role and we need to uh, make sure that we incorporate them properly. Yeah. And then the last one to me is something that I think we all agree on. And yet, for some reason, there's a lot of confusion about it, which is that teaching rules is not a substitute for meaningful engagement with the language. And a lot of textbooks appear to assume that it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we all, all, all know that is not the case. And so I think that as language educators, if we understand a little bit better the difference between implicit and explicit knowledge, um, and if, you know, perhaps teaching rules uh, fulfills any kind of an effective need for the students, just to know to separate that from expecting it, I taught it, now you know it, mm-hmm. go use it. Yeah. So if we can at least understand how important it is to have lots of opportunities for meaningful engagement with the language, and that's really going to help to develop proficiency, mm-hmm. nothing else. Yep, uh, yep. Yeah, we need we need sound effects, Sam. We need to like <laughs> have applause, you know. <laughs> we've we've done an applause sound effect before. Yes, like yes. A, make that a more regular part of our program. <laughs> Florencia, you talked about goal setting and assessments based on actual proficiency guidelines and can do statements. Can you review the most important takeaways for language educators in that regard? Sure. I would probably say that being familiar with actual proficiency guidelines more than the can-do statements, if I may. Please, actful, don't hate me. But I think the proficiency <laughs> guidelines are really the key here to mm-hmm. have realistic expectations. They are not perfect by any means, but they help us a lot to understand how much learners can do and especially how slow they will mm-hmm. move at a certain point. So from novice low to novice mid to novice high, they go incredibly fast and we all get super excited and Mm -hmm. want them to keep going at the same speed. But then we plateau at the intermediate low for a while, which can be frustrating for teachers and students. But we need to keep coming back to realistic expectations. What is my goal? And then how I'm going to be measuring how much I'm, I'm accomplishing that goal. And I think the biggest shift that I had to make myself in terms of the overarching goal when it comes to proficiency assessment was that I was assessing successful communication at their level and Mm. not correctly applying what I had taught. So whether Mm. it was correctly remembering the words we learned, correctly remembering the rules we learned, all of that goes out the window. Even though I gave them a lot of words, I gave them a lot of grammar, right? I gave them a lot of the tools they needed, but if they were still able to communicate successfully for their level, you know, in task and modality and all of that, then I I was happy. Then I knew that I had met my goal. Um, and if you look at the proficiency guidelines, uh, you know, they're not about counting errors. They're not mm-hmm. about how many words they know, right? Yep, so, good point. I think that we need to keep that in mind to look at language holistically and Mm -hmm. to look at to what extent can they do this, Mm -hmm. you know, successfully. And so I think for me, doing the the OPI training was was definitely eye-opening to realize, you know, how much what I was expecting of of my learners Mm -hmm. and then have to make changes, adjustments from there. Um, 
And then the other uh, important takeaway is that one student is not one level. We need mm. to keep remembering that. It's tempting mm -hmm. to do that because in an institutional setting, we set goals for the course. And then it's like, this course is this level. <laughs> but one course is not one level and one student is not one level. Yep. And so yep. it's going to be different how much they can read, how much they can listen, how much they can write, how much they can talk. And so we need to keep adjusting mm -hmm. our goals based on the modality, written, oral, and then based on the mode of communication, interpersonal, interpretive, presentational. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I think as you just said, it, it, language learning is so individual too, right? Yes. And I think that's where the can-do statements, I find them particularly helpful for the students because they can, this is a much easier way for them to see their own progress Mm -hmm. rather than, because I think sometimes the proficiency guidelines can be a little bit complicated for a student to really understand what does it mean that I'm novice, high, you know, right. intermediate, low, whatever. But I think the can-do statements help articulate that for students because it's much more practical and they can see their own progress as they move up the proficiency ladder. That's true. I think that's a really good point, and I like that you keep emphasizing the students The reason why, to me, uh, for, from the teacher perspective, the proficiency guidelines mm -hmm. were more useful yeah. is because sometimes I see the can-do statements as a checklist. You know, instructors yep. Yep. think, like, this is what I need to cover. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be careful. They were never meant to be a checklist. They were yep, never meant true. to be a curriculum. But I understand the way they're written. The people mm -hmm. tend to gravitate to using them as a checklist of things to cover. But they were not necessarily. They were meant to be used as you described it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you just talked about the um, the three modes of communication, interpersonal, interpretive, and presentational. So when we ask our students, what do you want to be able to do at the end of your language courses? What do they say? Have a conversation. Exactly. So what can we do in the classroom as a language educator to best support our learners to get there? That is a good question. <laughs> this is, I think yeah, this that's the be, holy grail. <laughs> exactly. This could be all 90 minutes. Um, okay, so I think what we need to do is, uh, first and foremost, it may sound silly, but I do think that we need to explain to students the importance of comprehension. Because, mm. yes, they want to have a conversation, but we're not going to get there by talking, right? We're not going to get there by having a conversation. We, we need to help them understand how we build a linguistic system in the first place so that then they can access it and have a conversation. And I think they need to have realistic expectations about how much of a conversation they're going to be able to have, um, but also to understand the importance of comprehension, how much you need to do, how much more you need to understand And then out of that, you're producing a subset, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think that it's important to keep emphasizing in our classes the importance of the interpretive mode to not forget it because the other two modes involve output. So output ends up winning, so to speak. And so we need to keep emphasizing the importance of interpretive and then make room, of course, for some presentational um, and definitely some interpersonal. But even interpersonal, You know, I think that in the lower levels, the beginning levels, it needs to be scaffolded quite a bit with some room, not not scripted, not, mm -hmm. you know, you only need to read these things and say yes, no, right? It has to be something where they do have some freedom and they're pushing themselves to retrieve from their own system, yes. Uh, but then the students need to understand that it's going to be 
limited how much they mm-hmm. can say, and that's okay. If they go a bit beyond, I think that's fantastic, right? But we don't want anybody to feel like they have fallen short, right? So yeah. I think if we adjust our expectations with the interpersonal mode, they will be more and more and more comfortable to keep taking risks, mm-hmm. you know, and, and build on that skill. But I think that we we cannot forget the importance of input and the interpretive mode for the other two modes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we tend to go straight to the other two because they feel the most active. But uh, interpretive is key. Great. Terrific. So then what role does or should research play as language educators build curricula, syllabi, classroom activities, and assessments? Well, I think that research can tell us a lot. The way that I look at research is like collecting clues in context, and then I Mm -hmm. interpret them as best as I can based on my own knowledge, and then also based on what I know about my own context, right, and my own students. Um, But the great Patsy Liebound said, you know, research is not here to tell us what or how to teach. We need to accept that. We need to embrace that. That all research can tell us is explanatory support, her words, not mine. And I think that is beautiful. That that is exactly Mm -hmm. what it is. When we're trying to make sense of it, when we're trying to understand why something works better than something else, I think research can tell us a lot about the the, the principles, so to speak, the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. After that, yes, application always requires adaptation, right? So not everything that works so well in research is going to work the same way with your students. Sure. I think we all know it. So there's a little bit of an art to teaching that is really hard to capture in empirical research, at least. But um, the other other role that I see of research, besides understanding the, the fundamentals, um, it's just the confidence, the confidence that it gives you as a language educator to be informed. And I think research helps us a lot in terms of being informed educators, to be understanding mm-hmm. the why we do what we do. We feel a lot more confident in the decisions that we're making, in explaining those to our students, uh, and in making changes, right? And in realizing, you know yeah. what, I need to learn more about this and I need to improve this part. So, um, that's basically the the role that I see of research. I don't think research can give us all the answers all the time for everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, it can help us understand why some things are working and why other things are not. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because you can probably support a hypothesis that you have about what effective language teaching looks like if you search long enough. Right? There's probably research out yes. there. I mean, there is there is sometimes conflicting. Yes. Research. And so I also thought it was interesting um, because you talked about the the difference between teaching language in higher education and teaching language in K-12 and how those educators in those in those different groupings might look to research in, in different ways to support what they do. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I it could be that this is just my impression. Obviously, I don't have I don't have concrete data to support what I'm about to say. Um, but what I would say is that I think that K twelve is looking a little bit more at putting all of the puzzles together, sometimes better, <laughs> whereas higher ed gets a little bit too stuck on. Well, but how valid was the research and mm-hmm. this particular study said mm-hmm. this? I think they get a little bit too caught up by the each individual tree in the forest, where I think that K-12 is trying to look at the whole forest. 
Mm-hmm. I, if I, you know, I don't know if that analogy works, but I, I, that's just <laughs> my impression of it. I feel like sometimes higher ed hangs on to that one study they heard one time who said this, you know, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit harder yeah. to to make changes, um, you know, in, in that sense. But um, I really admire, I think K-12 teachers are, are trying to to put, you know, connect dots, you mm-hmm. know, and, and put mm-hmm. it all together. And um, I, I completely understand the frustration when there is conflicting research or people, you know, saying different things. I, what I do tell or want, or want to remind everyone of that is that if you look hard enough, if you declutter, there's a lot more common ground than it looks, especially if we go back to what our goals are right mm-hmm. so if we keep going back to my goals are not to see if they remember this rule if they remember the words my goals are can they communicate successfully at this level i think there's a lot more consensus when it comes to how can we get there um and so we don't need to get so caught up in the in the conflicting messages or in the conflicting findings yeah. um because at the end of the day i think that some of the fundamentals are still there and everything still points to that same direction mm-hmm. Yeah, and you just said that we're looking for common ground, right? The title of your book, and I do think this is articulated so well in your book. It's very approachable, and it, you know, it makes all those principles and like of of what second language acquisition is all about. It makes those principles very clear and in in an accessible way, and also gives great little tidbits and tips for how to translate that into actual classroom teaching. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, I have a very broad question, but okay. we're going to throw it at you. What are some of the challenges language teachers face? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, a lot of them. You, but you know what I think is the biggest, biggest challenge of all? Time. Yeah. Time, yes. time, time. Either because we don't have enough time to be creating things or changing things or implementing things, but also time because acquisition is so slow. And as I said during the talk, nobody wants to tell the students, you're going to end up with the same proficiency level as when we started this course, right? And so I feel like we are almost inevitably rushing um, and we want to find shortcuts, right? And we want to get them to see progress as fast as possible. So I think time is the the biggest challenge we have, you know, and and it kind of goes hand in hand with impatience, right? This impatience on the part of the students to be like, how can I still not say anything? I mean, you know, there's only so much you can do, right? Or or even impatience on our part, right? That it's like, oh my God, we said this so many times, how could they still not remember it? And and sometimes it's just because it it just needs more time, Mm -hmm. you know, it Mm -hmm. needs more time. and, And sometimes we don't have it. Because, and, and Bill Van Pan talked about this in the Sophie uh, plenary too, like, it, you know, in institutional education, everything is so structured. You start here this many times a week, you know, yeah. you have to move forward, you have the midterm, you have the final, everything is, is just, you know, it's not organic enough and, and language acquisition is very organic. And so I think the time is the biggest challenge we have. So I already praised your book, which I will continue to do. Um, it provides a lot of great tools for evaluating common practices and activities in language classrooms. What sort of questions should educators ask themselves as they revisit what they do on a daily basis? 
So the questions that I usually propose that they are in common ground and they appear in just about every chapter because we wanted to keep recycling and coming back to them. Um, so two of them would be what information is being conveyed, and that is to highlight the importance of content and not so much language structures uh, or textbook sections, right? So what information is being conveyed? What content am I conveying? Uh, whether it is that I'm expressing it or that it's being conveyed by somebody else and I'm understanding it. And then the second question that I think is very important for, especially for language teaching, is what will others do with that information? Mm -hmm. And what I find is that a lot of teachers ask themselves the first question, but not everybody asks themselves the second question. Mm. And I think that they, what will they do with this information sometimes ends up being answered in a very abstract way, as in, well, they will learn it, or, oh, well, <laughs> they will be entertained by it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fantastic out in the real world. <laughs> uh, the classroom, yes, part of the real world, but it's a little bit of a different world. Uh, sure. it, it doesn't work the same way because it's very artificial to just be with a group of people that all we have in common is just when we're available. That's about it. And so it's very difficult to, as teachers, you know, to be proposing a topic or, or an activity or anything that everyone is going to inherently be motivated to do mm -hmm. or interested in. It is really right. difficult. And so for me as an educator, if I want to make sure that the information was conveyed successfully, then I want to make sure that it has a concrete purpose, that they're doing something with it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why, to me, that, that second question it goes for either input or output, it doesn't matter, right? So what are others doing with it? So even if the students are writing something, I want their classmates to do something with it, right? So somebody's output is somebody else's input and they sure. need to do something with it. Definitely. And then the third question <laughs> that I added recently is, can they do it without paying attention to meaning? And the reason for that mm -hmm. is because some things look like there's content mm -hmm. and some things look mm -hmm. like there's a purpose. But then at the end of the day, you can do it without even speaking yep. the language. Like yep. we, the activity that I showed, mm -hmm. right? That it was a glorified word search, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, you can do it without speaking the language. Then yep. I'm sorry, that is not contributing a whole lot. And if you have limited time in class with your students, going back to the challenge of time, Yep. You know, may, that may not, that should not be your go-to, right? That, that, yeah. That's just how, how you view it. Now, if you're doing it because your students enjoy doing it and it is not, you're not doing that activity for them to acquire anything, by all means, have fun, mm -hmm. do that activity mm -hmm. with them. But if you're expecting that activity to be contributing to their linguistic system, then you're going to be disappointed. That's yeah. all. Yep. Um, and then the last one that I think it's important, and it goes back to the art of teaching, if you will, but also the goals and realistic goals is, is it an achievable and enjoyable challenge? Mm. So I want them to be challenged, not too easy, too bored, mm -hmm. not paying too much attention, but I want it to be achievable. I want them to feel like they can do it, not get frustrated. And then enjoyable you know your students, right? My students, as I shared, they do not like the activities where they have to stand up and go around the room mm -hmm. finding yeah. names. They dread it. So why am I going to do it? It might sure. work really well for somebody else. I don't think there's anything wrong with suggesting it. But then you know your own students, and yep. then you need to figure out this is going to be an enjoyable activity versus not. 
Um, even, you know, among teachers, we have our own preferences, right? So I have a soft spot for two-way info gap tests and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I know <laughs> colleagues who are like, I cannot stand them. Okay. You know, you have to understand what's going to be enjoyable for most people yeah. uh, in the classroom. Um, so those would be the, the four questions I keep mm-hmm. asking myself. Great. Terrific. So, Florencia, where can our listeners find out more about you, your book, and the rest of your work? So, I have a linked, tr- no, a, a link tree. See, I don't even know what it's called anymore. Is it a, a <laughs> link tree page? What is it mm-hmm. called? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that's where I have all of the things. But um, just Google me and you'll find me. But I have a YouTube channel called Unpacking Language Pedagogy. And uh, my book. And so, yeah, if you Google me, you'll find me. And oh, I'm at the University of Illinois, by the way, my full time job. <laughs> Minor detail. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Florencia, we could keep chatting forever and ever, as you said, at, at least 90 minutes, right? But yes. um, in the interest of time here, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language that you love, that you speak, that you are learning, that you want to learn that makes you giggle. Fill us in on your word, please. So the last time you interviewed me, I chose circumlocution, and it's still a good word. Um, But I'm going to go with a different one this time, and this one's special because today is the 29th when we're recording this. Uh, And in my country, Argentina, the 29th of every month we have a tradition uh, that it is that you eat gnocchi. You know, the Italian <laughs> pasta. It's a good but tradition. My, yeah, no so kidding. My word for the day is gnocchi because <gasps> not only of the tradition, but one of my dogs is named gnocchi. Uh, he's a, a corgi, name. you know, oh he's my like, God. like a little put brown potato gnocchi thing. So it's perfect for him. So yeah, so gnocchi is the word of the day. Oh, how wonderful. I like that. Well, in, in honor of your tradition and your paparu, I think I'll have gnocchi for dinner tonight. Ooh, uh, perfect. That perfect. sounds like a good plan. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. It's always, always fun to chat with you. <laughs> Next week, we will speak with Dr. Valerie Friedland, professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. Did you hear that? I said Nevada. Yeah. (laughs) Whose new book, like Literally Dude, arguing for the good and bad English, will be on bookshelves near you soon. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners. And do stay tuned for our next episode.